Now this morning we are gonna be looking at a passage that I think as you read this, it's, many of you might know it, it's probably one of the most loved uh, stories of Jesus' life, it's very well known. Um, the story of Jesus uh, having this woman brought before him that we're told that was actually caught in the act of adultery and, and, uh, and the religious leaders brought here, accused her and, and literally said, okay, are you gonna, you know, should we stone her, we wanna kill her? And his, his response, that famous response to the crowd was ready to stone her was, was this, let him who is without sin amongst you be the first to throw a stone at her. And what a beautiful story. Now as we look at that though, I wanna acknowledge that we have to start by, by looking at something else in this passage. And that is if you have your Bibles open, there might be something there that you noticed. And that is that when you look at this passage, the verse is surrounded by some brackets. And it, and it probably is, you know, in, in pretty much all the versions, it's, it has a little thing there, okay, um, you know, uh, that, you know that, that if you look there, it's this little note that it talks about, it says, you know, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. And, and so there's some questions that we have to look at. Okay, what is it saying? What's it what's saying there? And, and to, to do that, I'm gonna get a little academic here for just a minute, so, um, you know, please, put up with that, it's, but, but I think we need to, to do this, is that when you have the English Bibles, it's important to understand how they were put together. And if you don't understand it, what you're gonna hear is people make accusations, and, uh, and you might look at a passage like this and say, well, 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 maybe the Bible's not that reliable. You see, because over the years, I've, and many of you may have had the same thing, I've had countless people that will come to me and say, you know, that the Bible, you know, it's unreliable, it's been translated over many years, it's been copied many times, and they have this idea that it's like the game of telephone, that it's been passed down time after time after time, and, and therefore, over time, it's become more reliable, and especially when you have a passage like this that it says right here, that not all texts agree whether it's even in there, you know, say, so, well, the Bible, you know, the Bible's just not reliable. Now, when people argue that, usually it's people that are looking to disprove the Bible, and it's also people who are arguing out of ignorance, not out of in any knowledge because they don't understand how we get the Bibles that we hold, the English Bibles that we hold. Uh, we do not have any of the original manuscripts. We don't have you know, the Gospel of John that was written by John. It was originally written in Greek, and, and what we do have is while we don't have the original, over the years, the scholars have gone and, and found you know, literally 5,000, over 5,000 ancient manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts, some of which date back, you know, fragments of within maybe 100 years of the original copy of John. And so over time, what's happened is that they have all these different manuscripts and they're able to compare and contrast. And what they find is amazing is that with all the manuscripts, all the translations, all the copies over, you know, literally, you know, 1,000 years that they can contrast, they see that there have been very few changes. It really shows more than anything else how careful people were in copying the Bible and in the many manuscripts that we have, it gives us you know, greater, even though there's differences, because we have so many, it, enables, it allows us to go back and be really confident that what we have is really, really close to the original. And when there are passages like this, in this passage, what, it's, 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 what it says is they're true, that some, most of the original uh, manuscript, or the oldest manuscripts that we have, do not have this, some do, some actually have it, some have it in another place. And, but, but most scholars will look at that and say, well, no, probably it was probably not the original book of John. And, and what we've gotta realize is that when we have a discrepancy like this, number one, it's really rare. 
Number two, when you have it, it's actually even put flat out there in the Bible so that you see it. And number three is that it's never on an issue of doctrinal, you know, key doctrine. There aren't any discrepancies on issues of key doctrine of who Jesus is, of how we're saved. All those things, there's total agreement. Now about this passage, again, without getting into the deep weeds of the debate, and, you know, and there's a lot of people that write all kinds of things about this, most people would look at that and say, because it's not in the oldest manuscripts, there's good reason to question whether it was originally written by John. Most people, most scholars that I trust believe that it was probably not written by John, but it probably was a true story of Jesus that the church had loved and that passed on and that carried on, and that probably what happened is that somewhere along the way, and this is where it's actually several different places and several different old manuscripts, somebody wrote it in as an illustration of this, what was told as a true story, as an illustration of the character of Jesus. And then somewhere over the time, people took it as from a side note that was an illustration and somebody included it as, as part of the original. And, um, and so that's what most people believe. Now you might ask, okay, well, if we're not sure that this is part of the original gospel, should we study it? And, and, and I've decided to spend the time and, and for a couple reasons. Again, as, as we said, most people believe it likely is a true story about Jesus. It's a story that was clearly loved by the early church. Um, and beyond that, it's a story that illustrates truths that are taught throughout the rest of the, of the Gospels. And so what we're going to do even this morning, you're going to see, I'm going to go to a lot of different passages. And part of it, I'm not going to say, okay, all the truths we're taking from, we're going to see this as an illustration of things that are taught elsewhere. And so, so that's why we're going we're to study it a little differently. And, and again, that means we're going to look at a lot of different passages that, that teach this character of Christ, that teach this nature of the gospel that we see now illustrated in the story about Jesus. As we dive into it, it does then teach us something right off the bat about the harshness and hypocrisy of, of religion. And um, for those who have been at our church for a while, you probably are used to me using that language, but there might be some who are new that, that are hearing that, you're saying, wait a second, um, you know, isn't this a church? Isn't this a place of religion? You know, why are you speaking critically of religion? Um, well, here's what you've got to realize is that, is that I, as I've studied it and I've looked at that, I believe true Christianity, the Christianity taught in the Bible, is not at all religious, but actually very much flies in the face of what religion is. You see, when we look at this, the Gospels constantly teach that throughout Jesus' ministry, it was the religious leaders that opposed Jesus. They hated him the most because his teaching opposed the religious spirit. Now, when religion, what I'm speaking of here is, is you know, you could say we're religion in one sense, it's a relationship between God and man, yes, but, but usually when we're talking about religion, and this isn't just Christianity, it's any different religion, all religions basically are saying there's a gap between man and God, and religion is the system by which we try to close that gap. And so when you look at all the different religions, it's basically saying, okay, here's the, here's the things we have to do. Here's the rules that we have to keep. Here's the beliefs we have to affirm. Here's the sins that we have to avoid. And if we do these things, this is how we work in closing that gap. Now, that's what all religion teaches. But the only difference is, okay, what are the rules? And what do we call God? And, you know, what are the sins that we have to avoid? And, and now, that's the spirit of religion, and that was true even in Jesus' day. And that's what Jesus confronted. That's why the religious leaders hated him, because they confronted him on that. See, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus is that we cannot earn our way towards God. 
We cannot undo our sin. We can't be good enough. We can't keep the rules. And so it's a message that says us that we have to acknowledge we cannot, you know, kind of bridge that gap. And so the whole message of the Bible is that it's not about what we do to work our way towards God. The whole message of the Bible is that God comes towards us. God reaches out towards us. And the gospel message is that we have to admit our need. We have to admit our inability to earn our own forgiveness, to earn God's reward. We have to acknowledge that in dying on the cross that Jesus died for our sins. He took our sins and the punishment for our sins upon himself. And then we need to then acknowledge that need and accept the gift that he's given us. Asking Jesus for his forgiveness. Asking him then to become the Lord and the leader of our lives. That's the Christian gospel and that is radically different than the spirit of religion. And so when we look at this, you see that the religious people resisted Jesus. And even amongst now those who claim to be Christians at times, we can fall back into this religious spirit and we've got to look at it and say, no, we don't want to go there. How did they do this? One of the things that religious people often do, because it's always saying, okay, here's the rules that I have to keep, then then what we do is we tend to say, okay, well, let me focus on the rules that I keep and and the rules that you break because then I'm morally superior. I'm closer to God to you because I'm keeping the right rules. Look at the Bible, if you have your Bible, starting in verse one. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now as bad as it sounds, when you read it actually more carefully, what you find is actually worse than what it would see. What you're seeing is it shows how religion consistently puts rules over people. Now Jesus is teaching in the temple. It's this very public place. He's surrounded by people. And in this public environment, these religious leaders bring this woman out, publicly shaming her, publicly proclaiming her sin, publicly you know, saying, you know, the law says that, that we should kill her. Now, one of the things is we're not 100% sure how this whole situation developed, but if you think about it, it actually, the most likely scenario becomes clear. Think about this. Um, here you have this woman that we're told that was caught in the act of adultery. Okay, that doesn't mean that, you know, that, you know, they heard a rumor. It means that she was literally caught physically in the act of adultery. And we're told that in bringing her to the temple and calling for her death, what's interesting is, is that if she's caught in the act of adultery, there was almost certainly somebody else there. <laughs> you know, adultery isn't a one-person sin. Um, and so here they bring her, but there is no man. And not only that, but we're told in verse six that they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now here what we have to ask is this, how did they actually catch her in the act of adultery at the time, if their goal was to test Jesus, they caught her in the act at the time and place where it was close to bring her to Jesus to make this big public thing to somehow trip up Jesus. And and not only that, but they brought her and not the man. And again, while we can't know for sure, most people that have studied this have concluded the most likely scenario is that likely this whole thing was a trap. Meaning not only for Jesus, but for the woman. Meaning that what most likely they did is they found some woman who had some reputation and they sent a man to seduce the woman 
and while the man's sleeping with the woman, now they know where she's at, they know what's happening, and so they're, they're doing this basically just then to grab her and to use her guilt as a trap against Jesus. And, and when you look at this and they say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, what do you say? Now, I want you to realize if that's what happened, they may have helped set this up. They're clearly not really concerned about the law because they may have set this up. They clearly aren't involved because they don't have the man there. It's not like they're sitting there saying, boy, something as terrible has happened. We want to defend the law. They're pretending that, but they're really not. But you realize that they're not concerned about that. They're, they're willing to sacrifice this woman. They're willing to literally cause her death. They're willing to, to do this. Why? Because they want to destroy Jesus. And they set this trap. What does it say? That it was a trap. They, 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 you know, they set a trap for him. And here's the trap. See, on the one hand, they can say, Jesus, okay, you got to decide. Is she guilty and are we going to stone her or you're not? Now, if he says, no, don't kill her, the, and, and what you've got to realize is that it was really rare, almost never would they actually find someone in adultery and, and stone them. It never happened. The religious leaders would never do this. So they're asking Jesus to keep the law in the way that they would never keep the law. And so it says if you say, well, kill her, um, then what, or don't kill her, they can say, well, you're breaking the Old Testament law. You're not only not doing it, but you're teaching us that we should disregard the Old Testament. How can you say you'd be a prophet? On the other hand, if he comes back and he says, well, yes, she deserves to die, the Romans had, were the people that were in charge. They were the governmental authorities, and they had given some latitude to the Jewish government you know, to, to do, the role, to, do their laws, but they had not given them the right for capital punishment. So if he says, well, no, you know, you, know, you should go ahead and kill her, then, they, then they're, gonna, they're gonna kill her, and then they're gonna first thing they're gonna run to Pilate, and they're gonna say, he's causing an insurrection. And so he's, they're trying to set up this trap. And what you've gotta realize that again, if that was their goal, they're not concerned about the, the rules. They're not concerned about the law. They're, they're concerned about really protecting themselves, you know, making themselves look good and willing to sacrifice not only Jesus, but sacrifice this woman in the process, which is really tragic. Um, you know, they not only put the rules over people, they're putting their position and their reputation, reputation over people to the point of humiliating this woman, possibly causing her death. Now, here's one of the problems, is that at the, at the end of the day, it's, it's putting rules, but it's certain sets of rules. Here's what religion does, is it judges others on a select set of rules. It doesn't focus on all the rules in the Bible, or, or any religious book, but the religious person always chooses a select set of rules, especially the rules that they're able to keep, and then it judges everyone else based on how well they keep those rules. Now let me try to illustrate this. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get our music guys up here. I'm gonna, if I can get Dave and Zach to come and help me out. I, I got a stick and I went to look for a stick and in my family a hockey stick is the longest stick I could get. So, it's, and, um, so let's see if I get y'all to come up here, all right? And we're gonna talk about like keeping rules. And, and let's say if the rule is a hurdle, all right? So let's take this rule and we're gonna say, okay, the hurdle, let's talk about sexual, if you can't stand on this side, and we're gonna stand on, you know, talk about sexual um, purity. Right now, the, what is God's rule? Be sexually faithful, it's not only that, but it's love your wife, be faithful to the, you know, it's not only that I don't sleep with anybody else, that I love her, I take care of her. That, you know, Jesus talks about that if I, when I think in my mind uh, uh, wrong thoughts and I'm guilty of the spirit of adultery, now this is the law, right? I, now how do I keep that? Now here's what religious people do. 
what we do is we say, well, that's not really, what the really says is it says don't sleep with someone not your wife. So we're gonna lower it down here. And so, so it's it just, you know, don't sleep with someone not your wife. And we might change it a little bit and say, you know, don't like watch movies that have nudity. And so, the, so here's the law. And now we're gonna say, is it gonna say, well, look at this. I'm keeping the law. And, and look at, and meanwhile, everyone else, you know, who doesn't, who trips over this, where everyone else, the little part that I said, well, it means that, you know, don't, it means don't watch any nudity or, you know, well, look, you know, they posted, they, they watch Game of Thrones. Oh, they're not a real Christian. But I am a real Christian. I am keeping the rule. I'm, see, it's my hurdle. And meanwhile, there's all the other bi- things in the Bible I ignore. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate. So thank you for your help. Now, does that make sense? Do you see how we do that? Do you see how religion does that? What religion is consistently doing is it's saying, okay, these are the hurdles. And so sometimes, you know, you talk about, I joke about like I went to a Christian school for a couple years and, you know, the rules were don't smoke or don't drink or don't chew or go with girls that do. You know, these are the rules. These are the hurdles. You know, this is, um, or you think of churches sometimes accurately accused of preaching against sins of the world, sex, you know, sex, sexual sins and homosexuality, and that's terrible, and, and we condemn the sins out there, and meanwhile, we ignore the sins in here. And, and that's what they're doing. They're finding somebody that is guilty of this obvious sin, oh, and we haven't committed adultery, and, and so therefore, we're condemning them, and meanwhile, there's all these other areas about God's law that they totally ignore because they're judging it based on the hurdle they defined and that they're jumping over. Now, when we think of this, it's easy to point this out against the more conservative churches, but the same thing's true of, of the more liberal churches as well. The liberal churches do this as well. It's, the, the thing is, is that it's, it's the same error, it's just different hurdles. See, they, they focus on different rules. They might look at that and say, well, we're not really concerned about the sexual sins. That's not that big of a deal. Well, but what we're gonna talk is we're gonna talk about other sins. We're gonna talk about social justice. What are you doing to help the needy? Or, or are you caring for the environment? You know, God wants us to care for the environment. Or, you know, the Bible says care for the stranger. What's your views on immigration? And, and so you have all kinds of people that will talk about these different hurdles. We'll ignore these. See, and it's easy for me to say, well, you know, they're guilty because they trip over these. And they look at me and they say, well, you're guilty because you trip over these. And you have that happening even in political selves. You know, right now you have these couple weeks, you have politicians that are speaking against Mike Pence or this or, you know, because he doesn't keep these roles. He's not a real Christian. Um, I'll talk to people whose lifestyle is defined by um, sexual sin and, and they're gonna downplay that sin and they're gonna say, but the church doesn't talk about this. You know, this is, you know, I don't want to think about those hurdles. I'm keeping these hurdles. What we've got to see here is that's a nature for all of us. Religion will always judge other on a select set of rules. And it's our nature to say, okay, what are the rules that I'm focusing on? Am I really looking at the whole of the Bible and seeing this is what it calls me to? Or am I taking a few set of rules and saying, well, look, I'm righteous, I'm spiritual, I'm morally superior to other people because I keep these rules and they don't. Look at what Jesus says in response to this. Verse seven, they continued to ask him and he stood up and said, let him who is without sin amongst you be the first to throw a stone at her. He's saying, you know, let's talk about the whole law. Are you really innocent? Are you really innocent of, of the whole law? You know, you wanna focus on this one area 
well, let's talk about everything that the Bible says. Okay, the person that is without sin, do you really want God's justice on your sin? Do you really want God to shine his light in every area of your life and that God would give you total justice? I don't think so. (laughs) And that's what he's saying here. And in this response, what he's doing is he, in a sense, could say disturbing the comfortable. The people that are the religious, the people that are thinking that, okay, I keep the rules, I'm jumping over the right hurdles. The people that feel good about themselves and are looking down at other people and saying, okay, no, I wanna speak to you in a way that disturbs you because all of us need to see our own sin. Again, look at that second part of verse six. Jesus says it, it says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him as without sin amongst you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, I think, you know, one of the questions we always ask is, what did he write? We don't know. We don't know for sure. I, you know, I think one of the favorite responses that opinions I heard is somebody who's saying, maybe he was writing names and looking at, you know, guys that said, Susan, okay, I know what you did with her. Okay, you know, Deborah, Mary, you know, I don't, probably not. Uh, <laughs> You know what I think is most likely, and actually based on scriptural basis? I think he was probably writing the Ten Commandments. And here's why. This is the only time we have Jesus writing. Can you think of any time that God wrote with his finger the Ten Commandments? That it, so we will look at that and we have an action that, it, that, that again we say, okay, when did God write? He wrote the Ten Commandments. And we don't know this for sure, but I think, I think what may have happened is that he begins to write the Ten Commandments and I think he does then look up at people. Okay, don't covet. Okay, he's looking there. Okay, don't commit, look in there. Don't, don't steal. He's looking there. Do you really love your God with all your heart, soul, your strength, might? You know, do you really put him first? Do you really have no other gods before you? You know, do you, have you ever taken God's name in vain? And he's writing these out, and I think there's a chance that maybe he's looking up. Here's what we've got to realize. Is this passage is one that a lot of people come to wrong conclusions. It's common to look at this passage and to conclude that what Jesus is teaching is that Jesus is rebuking people for making too big of an issue of the woman's sin. But if you look at his words, that's not what he's saying. If you see what he does, he's not saying, leave her alone, she's innocent. He doesn't say, you're making too big of a deal about her guilt. Instead, he turns and he says, let's talk about your sin. He doesn't say, you're making too big of a deal about her sin. He's saying, you're not making a big enough deal about your sin. You know, because at the end of the day, we're all gonna stand before God and and none of us are gonna have to answer for what someone else did. All of us have to answer to God for what we've done. We're all responsible before God for our own sin. In fact, that's what you see throughout the scriptures when you see throughout the scripture. Does the scripture talk about sin? You know, when you look at not only Jesus, but when you look at the whole Bible, it clearly talks about sin. And, and why is it, you know, you look at, let's say, Apostle Paul, does he call out sin? Yes, he does, very directly. But you know why he does? You know what the spirit that he does it in? He does it in the spirit that he first acknowledges his own sinfulness and his own surrender to God's grace. So it was because Paul would say this in 1 Timothy, 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He's sitting there saying, let's not talk about the hurdles that I, you know, I'm jumping over and that you're not and how bad you are and how good I am. He's saying, no, I look at God's word and it says that Jesus Christ to save, came to save sinners and I'm way more aware of my own sin than I am anyone else. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I mean, it's amazing, it's powerful, and, and that's what you see the Spirit here. That Jesus is looking at that and saying, not, well, she's innocent, you guys leave her alone. He's looking at it and saying, yeah, you're right, she's guilty. She deserves condemnation. But number one, it's not your role to play the role of the condemning, the judging, the, the punishment. That's, that's not your role. And, and beyond that, what I want you to do is I don't want you to focus not on her guilt, but let's talk about your guilt. Let's talk about where you are in relation to God. Now, he speaks these, these confrontational words. And to any of us that would fall into this trap of religion, of focusing on a set of rules and jumping over and feeling more superior, he speaks it to us. That he seeks to, in a sense, disturb the comfortable, but then for those that are here that are aware of your sin, that are disturbed and that are broken by that, he not only disturbs the comfortable, but that he also then speaks words to comfort the disturbed. And for those who are aware of our sin, he calls us not to look at our sin all the more, but to see God's grace, to see the grace and forgiveness. After telling the people, let him who is without stone be the first to, or sin be the first to throw a stone at her, then he goes into verse nine, and when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, when Jesus was left alone with them and standing before him. They dropped it because they realized, no, we're, we're not. You know, we don't want God's justice on us. We're all guilty. And then he says in verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Again, it's important to see here, Jesus doesn't say, you're not guilty. What he says is, you are guilty, but I don't condemn you. When he says, go and sin no more, what he's saying is, you are guilty. He's not saying, you know, when I, I don't condemn you because you're innocent. He's saying, you are guilty, but I don't condemn you in spite of the fact that you're guilty, which is amazing. See, this is the, this is the message of, of Christianity. It's not religion of saying, okay, I, if I jump over enough hurdles, if I do that, that somehow I can say, well, I'm, I'm innocent before God, I'm good. No, it's I can't do that. But that each one of us has to come to the point where we realize that even Paul said, I am guilty. I am the chief of sinners, I am guilty. But when we recognize our guilt, that he comes and says, but I don't condemn you. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus came to take the condemnation, the judgment from those who are guilty. That's what happened at the cross. That Jesus Christ took my condemnation. He took the penalty, the judgment that I deserved, the death that I deserved. Do I deserve to be stoned? Far more so, I deserve eternity in hell. But that's what Jesus came and took, uh, took upon himself. Do you, do you understand what it means that Jesus came and took the condemnation? that he, in a sense, takes your punishment. He takes the, 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 deserve, the punishment we deserve so that he would then look to any who would believe in him and say, 
I don't condemn you. It's not that you're not guilty, you are, but I don't condemn you. You know how he could say that? Because he said, ultimately, I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. Yes, you're guilty. Yes, you deserve to be stoned. Yes, you deserve to be crushed by those stones. Yes, you deserve that death. But I will take those stones. I will be crushed. And the gospel is on the one hand, you are guilty and your sin deserves condemnation, but on the other hand, I do not condemn you because I take that condemnation. Look at again in verse 10, what does he say? He says, you know, where, where are they? No one has condemned you. He's saying, you know, you know, you know where's your accusers? And he's saying, okay, they're not accusing you and the only one that has the right to accuse you is the one who's perfect and I'm the perfect one and I'm the one that can accuse and that can condemn. I don't condemn you because I take that condemnation. And we're gonna see this, we'll look at this a little more deeply in a, in a few minutes, but in John 3, 17, it's a great verse. Jesus, it says, for God did not send his world, son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The message of the gospel isn't one of condemnation, it's one of salvation from that condemnation. Look at even when we look at this picture of stoning and what we deserve, and what is stoning? It's that we are crushed by these stones. We are crushed because of our guilt, because our deserved, sin deserves it. Isaiah 53 tells us this about Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chat was, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He took the stones, he took the crushing, he took the punishment that we deserved. Why, because like all, all we like sheep have gone astray. We are all guilty. We have all turned, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That God has laid on Jesus Christ and Jesus has taken it, not only the sin, but the punishment of that sin. So that those who are guilty, he could look and say, yes, you are guilty, but I don't condemn you because I've taken the condemnation in your stead. Do you believe that? Have you ever trusted in Christ? Have you ever accepted that gift that he offers you? Now, even as we understand that, I want to come back and say there's a, there's a sense of what we've got to look at, what this verse is teaching and what it is not. And it, sometimes people look at this and say, well, what it's saying when it says, you know, let him without sin don't, you know, you know uh, cast the first stone. And if we don't have sin, we can't ever say anything is wrong. And well, that's not what it's saying. It's actually telling us something else. It's calling us as followers of Christ to speak the truth without condemnation. Uh, when you look at this, it, it's, it's not saying, you know, if, you know, you gotta be without sin to speak truth. So when you look at this, the thing that Jesus challenges of these religious people that bring this woman to him is not the fact that they've called her behavior wrong. What, they're do, what he's doing is he's challenging the fact that they've taken it upon themselves to punish her. They've taken God's role to say, we will be the ones that will call out, okay, this is, deserves death, this deserves, we can publicly humiliate her, we can bring her in front of people, we can, we can, we can shame her. In James chapter four, verse 12, it talks about there's one law, one, one, uh, one God, one lawgiver and one judge and this idea that it's only God has the right to determine what's right and wrong, and only God has the right to determine the penalty of breaking that. See, it's, it's, the question here isn't discerning between right and wrong. 
but it's taking upon themselves the right of judge to condemn the behavior, to mete out consequences. They become a spiritual lynch mob. And that's what it's condemning. It's not saying that we shouldn't discern right and wrong. No, discerning right or wrong, what's the, the, the bar? The bar should be God's word. It's not I can move it up or down whether I like it or not and judge other people by it. It's God's word and God's word should judge me. I should study it and say, God, what are you telling to me? But then it, what we've got to realize is that, okay, God, how do you speak to me? How do I apply this? What does it say to me? But then in the midst of that, I've got to realize at the same time, I'm not condemning people, I'm not, but I've got to speak the truth. Why? Because Jesus, John 1.12, or John 1, 14, he was full of grace and truth, that he was full of truth. And in this woman, he doesn't just say, well, I don't condemn you, but he says, go and sin no more. He says, it was sinful, now go change your life. You see, what we, the Bible teaches is that Jesus here confronts the spirit of condemnation. He doesn't confront the difficult words of, of truth. He's not saying that we shouldn't speak truth. And when I say truth, it's not our opinion, it's God's word. Because what's right or wrong isn't a matter of what I think or you think or what's popular or what our church thinks, it's what God's word says and are we being faithful to that? Again, one of the best known passages in the Bible, we, we saw earlier in John, John 3:16, and we know this, you know, so many of us know this passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now look at the next verse, what it says right after that. God loved us, the story of the gospel is God, not us working our way towards God, but God pursuing us. And what was that message? For God did not send his, world into the, or send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world uh, might be saved through him. The message isn't one of condemnation. But then look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. And so here you have the message of Jesus Christ isn't a message of condemnation, but at the same time, it isn't one that ignores the fact that we are condemned if we don't turn to Jesus Christ. My friends, if we don't speak the truth, if we don't speak the truth about God's word and about the reality of spiritual judgment one day coming upon people, if people aren't aware of their need, they will never come to the Savior. If I don't need to know I need to be saved, I, I will never look to Jesus Christ as a Savior. And so we speak the truth not to condemn, but to speak words of warning of condemnation and to say, let me tell you the truth. And, and it isn't condemn, it's to tell you how to escape condemnation. Let me speak the truth of the one who came and who died on the cross to take our condemnation. But the fact of the matter is that if we do not accept Christ, the world stands already condemned. And that's the truth. And so we speak the truth because we need to hear the truth to hear the word of grace. Now let me just close up in a couple of, uh, ideas here of just how do we apply these ideas, some of the principles, just r- real quickly, and, and, um, and some of the things that I think that are here and, and that we need to apply. Uh, first of all, when we look at this and, and, and saying how do we apply these things, how do we live these out, what are the principles that God wants us to see? Uh, you know, I think the first one is that I think that it's calling us to, um, to live out uh, and speak God's truth as defined by Jesus' grace. So we're called to live it out. When I think of Jesus, again, I love in John 1:14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We have seen his glory, glory of the one and only son of the father, full of grace and truth. That he had the spirit, the, the truth to be able to look at the woman and said, go and sin no more. Yes, it is sinful. But at the same time, I don't condemn you. 
that he was the one that if you look at the next verses in John 3, he's the light that comes and his light exposes the world and the world hates him because, but that's John 3, 19 through 21 and, and you look at verse 17 and it says he didn't come to the world to condemn the world. See, my friends, we are called to live and speak out God's truth and when I say live it, it means first of all, apply it to ourselves. And if I'm not really saying, okay, here I'm a sinner and here's how I'm trying to surrender to God and well, I can't speak it to someone else if I haven't preached it to myself first. That's what Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, and you know, uh, you know, don't judge lest you be judged, and that's the whole idea. Speak to yourself first, so live it, and then speak it, but we speak it as an invitation. Again, Jesus didn't make, the error wasn't that they made her sin too big, it's that they made you know, their own sin too small. I've gotta speak it there, but then invite them to say, okay, but here's the truth but I speak the truth not because God hates you and condemns you or that I hate you and condemn you, but because God loves you. So as we live that out, we've gotta then come back and say we, God calls us to prim, focus primarily on applying his word to our own lives. And that's that whole emphasis of living it out. So, so anytime again, you know, and we've gotta realize that spirit of religion, what's my tendency? It's my tendency to, to take a couple hurdles and to apply them here and and then I've got somebody else that said, but you don't do this. Okay, my friends, let's not look at what hurdles we're jumping over well. <laughs> what hurdles are we not jumping over? What are we ignoring? How are we applying God's word? And then as we interact with people, I strongly encourage you, don't look down on someone. Don't look at, well, you're bad, or you, you know, I, I interact with people all the time. They're caught in some, oh, I can't go and talk to him, he's gonna, and I said, why would I look down on you? <laughs> I'm a sinner just like you. There's no reason, and if I'm destined to hell and I'm only saved by the grace of God, I cannot look down at anyone. And so I look to focus God's word on myself and make sure that I remove the plank from my own eye, as it talks about in John or Matthew 7, before I talk about the speck in anyone else's eye. So what's it saying? It's saying, okay, God wants to disturb some of us that might be comfortable, but he also wants to comfort those that might be disturbed. And just in closing, I want to say that there may be some here today that are, that are broken. That you, you, know, you feel ashamed. You feel whether you've been found and caught out or whether you just know there's something that you fear is going to be found. That you fear that you're going to be exposed. If you're bruised or broken, let me, let me call you to go to Jesus. Again, I, I talk to people all the time that, you know, I can never go, you know, people that, I can never go to church. If the ceiling would fall in on me or when they're caught, and it's like, I can't go to, I can't go to a small, small group. I'm with the shame and, and we want to hide. And what I want you to realize is what you see here in the spirit of Jesus, he, he doesn't say, well, go hide. He draws her towards himself. And for all of us who are broken, who are bruised, he calls us to himself. You see, when we deal with that, it's the spirit of religion. And what do we interact with? Too often, religion can seep even into the church where here's the bars, and if you don't jump it over, well, we're gonna look down, and we're gonna reject you. Now, the fact of the matter is that all of us have fallen short. There isn't any of us that can pick up a stone at anyone else. And so when we are broken, ideally, we come to a people that understand that brokenness, and we can say in Christ and him alone can we find the acceptance and forgiveness and the grace that we desperately long for. And there may be some here and you've done a great job of hiding because you know you have 
something in your past that is, you're so afraid of that you feel such shame. And I want you to realize that in that hiding, you got barriers and you're saying nobody can love the real me because nobody can know the real me. I want you to realize that God knows the real you. And God seeks to expose, not to contemn, not to, to shame, but to heal. In a sense, the most the worst thing in that woman, the worst day ever, was being dragged out in front of all these people and saying, she's guilty, and there couldn't have been anything worse, that there couldn't have been anything better, because she feared the rejection of the people, but she found the acceptance and grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. My friends, Jesus Christ offers that to you today. Will you come to him? Will you look to him? Will you say, yes, I'm guilty, and but I want to accept that forgiveness because I know in you there is no condemnation. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.